following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 16th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Got your Bible. Go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 4. I had to help them see that that didn't mean 8.30. We really wanted them to come at 10.30, you know, so I had to to help them to understand we were doing something good for them, you know. So Philippians chapter 4, we're going to continue through this book. We're going to try to wrap this up next week um, as we close out the Advent season. But this morning, we are going to particularly be in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So let's read those together, and then let me pray, and then we'll see what God has for us in his word this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you again for the privilege that it is to be here this morning and we ask that you by your Holy Spirit would do that work that only you could do and that you would once again open up our ears to hear your voice and your word and open again our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of your son Jesus that we might better enjoy him. We ask this morning in the time that we've got left that you do that which only you can do and you do it in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. How many of you, an honest question, all right, how many of you like being told what to do? How do you feel when we read these verses, and be honest with yourself, how do you feel knowing your life and your world, and we read these verses and Paul tells you to rejoice? How do you feel when you consider that Paul tells you to do it twice? How do you feel when Paul tells you that you're to always be doing it in all things? How do you feel when someone tells you to be reasonable? A few years ago, the staff went to a conference down in Florida, or in Texas, where was it, Texas? Which one was it, Texas? It's infamous amongst our our staff and and my family. We went to this conference for church staffs and they break out the conference by the size of your church. So you go to the plenary sessions and all your workshops are with churches about your size and they they do different topics and different sessions and you sit there and listen and they bring different people in. And the sessions and the workshops for our size church were all led by pastors from Florida. All these guys knew each other, and it was that way because the guy organizing it for our size churches was in Florida. So we just got all of his friends together, and, and that's what they did, right? So we sit there, and we're with churches from around the country. We're listening. It, it's going fairly well. It's been interesting to start. And then right before lunch, there's a guy in Florida who leads a church in Tampa, fantastic church, great guy, talking about leadership in, in churches our size that are growing, and questions coming all over the place and there was a point in his session where he was writing something on the whiteboard and questions were continuing to come and so the moderator who knew him from Florida as well said in the middle of the session how about you write your email up on the board so that people can send all these questions to you and you won't get bogged down in here answering them all and he didn't miss a beat back to the room, writing on the board, microphone on, said, how about you never tell me what to do ever again for the rest of your life? (laughs) 
And we were sitting there just like that. Like, had they planned this? Like, was this? No. This guy sitting here said, well, I didn't know what to do. He turned around. He said, well, I guess that's evidence of sanctification at work in, in front of all of you. And he continued to go on. And even as he finished, they kept going back and forth at each other. When he finished his session, the moderator gets up to pray for him and kind of lead us in being thankful and grateful for him coming to teach us. And, and he looked at him, had his hand on him, had his mic on said, you know, said, brother, I, I'm just so thankful for you and, and so grateful. And he's going at this pace. You remember, don't you, Ryan? This pace. So grateful for your willingness to be so inefficient for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> this guy looks at him and says, was that an insult? And this guy looks back at him and says, I don't know. <laughs> and then we prayed and went to lunch. And the pastor that led the next session coming out of lunch threw his eraser at a sound guy who fell asleep while he was talking. So I was thinking about it this morning, even thinking about that story, thinking these conferences are more for church members because you need to see what we're like. Like, like <laughs> if you ever get the idea that we're somehow further along in some things than everybody else, you just need to come watch us when we're all together. Um, you'll see that we're not. But no one likes being told what to do. Especially when you're considering all the various circumstances and situations that are going on in your life and someone comes to you and has the perfect piece of advice for you and what you should be doing. It's not uncommon for people to come even to these verses in the Bible. It's one of the places that you'll hear people talk about it the most where they'll come to these words, they'll come to what the Apostle Paul is saying and they'll allow themselves to read these words and begin to believe that this is exactly the kind of place in the Bible that proves the Bible is just out of touch with present day reality. At best, the Apostle Paul is just unhelpful. People will sit in chairs like this this morning, read these words, and have a dialogue in their minds going on right now, like some of you, that will say, does he even realize that when I wake up tomorrow, I don't have a job to go to? When I walk out of here, I have children that won't acknowledge my existence. Later this week, I'm going to a doctor's appointment that I simply can't bear to hear what he's going to have to tell me. Rejoice. Be reasonable. And it's as though Paul is actually a human who understands what goes on in the hearts of people just like himself. And it's as though he even anticipates some of this inner monologue in these letters when he says, yes, you, rejoice. Again, I'm going to say to you, rejoice. And this morning, before we just dismiss Paul outright, it's very helpful for you and I to get a couple of things straight in our mind when we read this. The first thing we've got to get straight in our mind is remembering who the man was who wrote it. When Paul wrote this letter, when he wrote these words, he was chained to a member of the Praetorian Guard in prison. He did not know if he had 30 seconds, 30 minutes, or 30 more years left on his life. He was awaiting the sentence of his life. We know through the rest of the letters that Paul has written to the churches, we've referred to it throughout this series, that Paul was a man intimately acquainted with pain. Physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual. He's writing this letter to a church 
that is undergoing significant persecution for their identification with Jesus, for being publicly identified with Jesus, for standing firm as Paul has encouraged them to do, for pronouncing with their lives that Jesus is indeed king, not Caesar. They are undergoing a tremendous amount of suffering. So this morning, before you outright dismiss Paul as being unhelpful, Don't do it on the grounds of believing that he's unacquainted with what you're going through. That he's just too far removed from the 21st century to understand the kind of difficulty and circumstance and pain that you might be feeling. Don't dismiss him like that. At least get that straight as you come to what he's saying. But the other thing that we have to get straight in our mind that will help us better understand everything that he's saying in these verses as they kind of go together is we're going to have to get straight in our minds the difference between happiness and joy. Those are not the same thing. Happiness and joy are not synonymous. Happiness, by definition, is an emotion that is tethered to the happenings of your life. That's where the word comes from. The happenings of your life are the grounds of what we call happiness. We're happy when the happenings of our life are lining up for us in ways that we determine are favorable. So however you determine a situation, a circumstance, a relationship, or whatever is going on in your life to line up in a favorable way for you, maybe you're looking good in front of other people in light of this. Maybe you're being able to experience today and tomorrow and the next day without pain or discouragement or suffering because of the way things are lining up. When things are lining up for us, when the happenings are lining up in ways that we deem as favorable, we're happy. That's what it means. But when they're not... When they're not lining up in ways that we deem as favorable for us, we're not happy. Our happiness, by definition, is tethered to the circumstances of our life. If you need a picture for your mind, you could picture in some sense the the soil that happiness springs out of are the circumstances in your life. But Christian joy is altogether different. Christian joy is unlike happiness. Christian joy is rooted and grounded in something that doesn't shift. It's rooted and grounded and nourished and secured in something that never changes. Which is why Paul says in verse 4, rejoice. Thirteenth time we've hit this aspect of joy. Rejoice in the Lord. See, the joy that secures, the joy that nourishes, the the ground, the soil for Christian joy is Jesus. More specifically, the ground for our joy is the relationship that is ours by the grace of God secured, nourished, and sustained by the gospel. The gospel is the nutrient-dense root, encouraging, root-feeding, root-stabilizing soil for joy. So for just a minute, I want you, for the sake of your your own heart, to just consider some of the realities of this gospel, of this good news, the angels said, of great joy that is meant by God to be the stabilizing reality for the joy of your heart. Just consider it for, for just a moment. 
that the Bible tells us before you ever existed, before you were even a figment in your parents' imagination, God set his affection upon you. And that as Paul has already told us in Philippians chapter 2, God's own son didn't consider equality with God as a thing to be grasped and held on to. But for God's glory and for our joy, he emptied himself, humbling himself, taking on the form of a human, a servant, being born in the image and likeness of man, the first coming of Jesus. And in that life that he lived on this earth, he lived a life of moral perfection before God in our place so that by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, the righteousness and standing with God that only he deserved can be credited to us. Just consider for a moment that the one who, who did not consider Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and lived the life that you were created to live, then in your place took the just judgment of God for your sins upon himself on the cross because God had to punish sin. Because of his character and his holiness, he couldn't overlook it. He exhausted his just wrath on his son in your place for your sin. And this God, who before you ever existed, had purposed this plan to make you his own and set his affection upon you before you ever were, has caused you by his grace to be born again, Peter said, to a new and living hope. That's what he's done. He's opened up your eyes that you might see his son and find joy. He's opened up your ears that you might hear this good news of great joy and believe it. He's given you his very spirit, Paul said, as a down payment of the fullness of the inheritance that is yours to come by the grace of God when Christ returns and we see him and we're made like him and we enjoy him for all eternity. Friends, it's this good news, the angels said, of great joy about Jesus that God has always intended to be the grounds for the joy of our hearts. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the good news about him that is meant to nourish and secure our soul on a daily basis. I mean, it's all fair to say that this joy that Paul is calling us to express here in Philippians 4, that he said 14 times now throughout this book in some measure or way that we're supposed to express because of Jesus, it's fair to say that an intended effect or fruit of the gospel is this very joy. And so if, if we gather here and we, we walk out of here and we get together with each other and we talk about being a gospel-centered church or gospel-centered people, if we're actually people whose lives are centered to and tethered in and rooted in this good news about Jesus, if, if this is the news and the reality that's actually increasingly shaping and forming our understanding of who we are and how we live in the world in which we live, what else is there for us to do? but express that joy that we have in him. Rejoicing is just the verbal form of joy. It's just joy breaking out. That's what it is. 
If the gospel is real, if the gospel is true, and it is the grounds of our hope, if it is the center of our hearts, what else is there for us to do then but rejoice? It's why Paul can command it of us. And here's the thing, rejoicing, joy in action, the expression of that joy in our hearts that has come as we have seen and continue to enjoy Jesus, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Don't get confused. We're not talking about simply like happy, clappy times all together when we're all about Pollyanna faces on each other in the middle of things that we're going through. That's not what joy is. I I love how, how Sam Storms, he's a pastor in Oklahoma, He talks about this and talks about the ways that joy is expressed in in a variety of people in a variety of circumstances. And he said the Apostle Paul could care less whether your joy is expressed with hands raised or with your face pressed against the ground. It matters not whether it's the rhythm of fast-paced worship songs or in solemn silence with tears streaming down one's face. Because as we'll see in a minute, Christian joy is no mere emotion Christian joy is the informed response of the whole heart to the reality of who Christ is for us. Christian joy is what is grounded in our hearts that grounds us in the moments of shifting sand and suffering that allows us to have a confidence in the one who is holding us and keeping us when everything around us is falling apart. The tears are rejoicing. The tears are joy in action. Joy comes in active forms in any manner of ways because our heart is being rooted in that moment, in the reality of who Jesus is for us. You see, what's of utmost concern for Paul in writing this letter right now is not the various ways that joy is to be expressed. He's wanting to again remind the church of where the ground for their joy is. Where is their joy rooted? Where is it nourished? And again, he reminds us, because it's so essential, that Jesus is our joy. Whether the skies are dark and gloomy, or whether you walk out today and it's sunshine and butterflies, in all of it, Jesus is our joy. And because our joy is rooted and grounded, substantiated and secured in Jesus, our joy can be constant. It can be comprehensive. Paul can say it happens always. Why? Because unlike all of our circumstances, unlike all of our happenings in life, unlike all the different things that we have to face on a day in and day out basis with people and different phases and seasons of life, Jesus never changes. He is always the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is always good. He is always true. And as Paul has already told us earlier in the letter, he is always at work in us by his spirit for our joy and for his glory and our greatest good. Friends, if if Jesus is indeed the ground for our joy, if, if joy is rooted in the reality of our relationship with him, I want you to catch this. Joy unlike happiness, is no mere emotion. Don't get them confused. Joy is the heart's informed response to the reality of who Jesus is. It's the entire person responding to the gospel. It's why we talk around here about the need to see Jesus 
It's why we use the, the community Bible reading tool, the CBR journal, talking with each other on a day in and day out basis, encouraging each other as we worship the Lord in his word that we might help each other see Jesus because the more we see Jesus, the more we can enjoy Jesus. The more we see Jesus, as we increasingly see him, the more we're able to enjoy him. And the more we see him and the more we enjoy him, the deeper the roots of our joy go down in who he is for us. That's how it works. And here's the thing that Paul wants us to see. The more we see him, the more we enjoy him, the more we're able to reflect him to a watching world. The more we see him, the more we enjoy him. The more we enjoy him, the deeper our, our roots go down in who he is. The more capable we are of responding with an informed whole self to the reality of who he is. The more that joy can break out in the different circumstances of life. It's in those moments that we reflect something of him in the way that we respond. This is where Paul's going in verse 5. It sounds like it's Paul's version of Proverbs. He's just jumping from one thing to another, but he's not. They're tied together. When Paul says in verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, it's intimately connected to what he just said about rejoicing always in the Lord. See, Paul's reminding them here that there's something that you and I are supposed to be known for. There's a reputation that God intends for us to have as his people. A reputation that we're meant to desire. And that reputation is directly related to our joy being rooted in Jesus. That's what he's saying. But to fully grasp it and understand it, translators have tried for years to find a word in English that captures the weight and the fullness of what Paul is saying here in verse 5. And we just struggle to capture it because we don't have an easy translation for it. So some of your Bibles will say reasonableness. Some of your Bibles will say gentleness. Some of your Bibles will say moderation. Some of your Bibles will say gentle forbearance. They're all coming at this one idea from different angles, trying to get their hands around it, and all of them are trying to get their hands around a word that can communicate some kind of quality of steadiness of soul. There's a steadiness of soul that is reflected in the different shiftings of happenings in life that is a reflection of the one in whom we find great joy. And all of those different words capture a different piece of it. There's a steadiness of soul that's able to extend kindness in the face of unkindness. Able to extend kindness in the face of injustice. Able to extend kindness in the face of bitterness. There's a gentleness in this steadiness of soul the word is trying to capture, but not just that. There's a steadiness of soul that and the happenings of life that shift and change it is not always demanding that we get our own way. When the happenings of life aren't lining up favorably for us in relationships with other people or even in different circumstances, this reasonableness, this steadiness, it doesn't demand our own way. It doesn't pick up the ball, tuck it under our arm, and go home because we're not getting what we want. In some sense, this word that we're trying to communicate and translate, it's like the opposite of entitlement. There's a satisfied steadiness to this quality that Paul's talking about. It's a steadiness of soul. It's not up here with Jesus when everything's lining up favorably, but down here in despair when things aren't working the way they're supposed to. 
This word is this weighty, kind of fully orbed idea of, of steadiness of soul that's rooted and grounded in the face of the highs and the lows and the shifting of the different happenings in our life. I mean, the best image that I can get in my mind to try to get my head around it is when we were in Dubai and we, we got a chance to go to the, the site platform of the Burj, tallest building in the world. And if you've ever been up to a, a site platform at a tall skyscraper, you know that when you get up there and you get out on that platform, the entire building is moving. But it's not going to fall. It's architecturally built and designed to be able to flex because the circumstances of the wind and the atmosphere at that kind of height bring all kinds of pressure on the building. And if they don't build the foundation deep enough and architect that building in a certain way to allow an amount of give in it, it's going to snap. That is in essence what this reasonableness is like. There is a steadiness and a rootedness and a groundedness of soul that is able in the midst of different shifting circumstances and situations in life when it's not lining up favorably for us to be able to bend with gentleness, to bend with forbearance, to bend with kindness and not break. This reasonableness and steadiness, it's cultivated from an increased enjoyment in Jesus. See, the more we see him and the more we enjoy him, the more we're able to reflect him the more we're able in those circumstances to look like the one that Peter talked about in 1 Peter 2, who when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's fair enough to say that the reasonableness that Paul is calling us to in these verses are joy in action. The more we see Jesus, the more we enjoy him. The more we enjoy him, the deeper the roots of the gospel go down in our heart as we experience the reality of that joy. So when things don't line up favorably for us, we entrust ourselves to the one in whom our joy is grounded in. Reasonableness is joy in action. Rejoicing here looks like being reasonable when things aren't going well. When you're chained to a guard waiting for the sentence on your life, when you're being hunted and persecuted for being identified with Jesus, when you wake up tomorrow and don't know how you're going to pay the bills, reasonableness, reasonableness between two believers like we saw last week who weren't able to get along but have so much more in common in Jesus than they do in anything else, reasonableness is joy in action because it's a reflection of the one in whom our joy is grounded. The more we see him, the more we enjoy him. The more we enjoy him, the more we're able to reflect him to a watching world. But let's take a, a moment to just be honest with ourselves here. How many of you at some point in your life have prayed that God would work in you a reputation for reasonableness? I mean, we don't even talk about reasonable as being a virtue anymore, do we? But Paul says this is what we're supposed to be known for. We're, we're supposed to let our reasonableness be made known. We're supposed to be known for this reflection of this aspect of the nature and character of the one in whom our joy is found. So just give yourself a minute and just think about for a moment. What is it you actually want to be known for?
I mean, we all put significant amount of energy and resource, emotional and physical, into being known for certain things. We all have different drives that we want to be known for, different things we want to be known for. What do you want to be known for? God reminds us through the Apostle Paul, we're, we're supposed to be known for our reflection of the one in whom our joy is grounded. And everyone is supposed to see this. This is the thing that you just have to think logically about just to understand the, the magnitude of what Paul is saying. By definition, for your reasonableness to be seen, for this steadiness of soul to be observed, for this reputation to grow as people are able to observe your reasonableness in the face of shifting circumstances and, and times and situations, it means by definition that reasonableness is not something reserved just for people who agree with you. By definition, your reasonableness is only seen when people are criticizing you, when things aren't lining up well for you, when you're being overlooked, when you're being dismissed, when you're being ignored, when you're being judged, when you're being taken advantage of. When things are not lining up for you the way that you would see as favorable for you, this is when our reasonableness is made known. By definition, it means you're not right now getting your way. It's in these moments, in these relationships, in these circumstances and situations that we are reflecting something, that our joy is meant to become Active, that our joy, rejoicing, actually happens because we're reflecting the deeper grounds of our joy in Jesus. We're reflecting something of him in these moments. And Paul says this is the reputation that we're supposed to desire. This is the reputation we're supposed to pursue. And we pursue it by seeking to see and enjoy Jesus more and more. So that when we're wronged and when our happenings aren't favorable, we're able to proclaim through our responses to a watching world, we're able to demonstrate a quality of character that says I have something better than anything this world could ever offer and I have something better than death itself could ever take away. Our, our joy is rooted in something the world can't give and death can't take. Our joy is constant, our joy is comprehensive, because our joy is in Jesus. And the more we see him, the more we enjoy him, the able we're better to reflect him and the shifting realities that you and I have to endure. This is the one who, even and especially in the valleys of life, when, when circumstances aren't favorable, when we come face to face with injustice, when we seem to have every reason to despair, we're reminded that the grounds and the security and the nourishing reality of our joy is right here with me even in this. It's why Paul says, let your reasonableness be made known because the Lord is at hand. 
See, the reason we can be joyful in all things, the reason we can always rejoice, the reason our joy can take action in different circumstances and we can reflect the reality of the character of Christ in our reasonableness is because He, the grounds for our joy, is at hand. Emmanuel, God with us. Friends, we await the promised return. That's what Paul has been encouraging us about. He is at hand. He is coming, yes. But he is present with us by his spirit. And you and I can rejoice. We can know the joy that is ours because of the grace of God to us in Jesus today, right now, in the midst of whatever life is bringing to us. And that joy can take legs. It can move. It can act in our reasonable response, in our gentle forbearing response, in our reflection of the one in whom our joy is found because he's with us, because he's present. Friends, this Advent season, whatever circumstances that you're grappling with, you walk out of here and you wake up tomorrow morning and you're you're tempted to the brink of despair because of some unfulfilled desire, some good desire that you have had that God may have even given you that is yet to fulfill and it's brought you to the point of despair. Or you walk out of here feeling hopeless because people that you love, friends and family, are on a path that ends in destruction. Or you wake up tomorrow feeling helpless because you're having to grapple personally with the realities of a failing body in a fallen world. Friends, whatever the shifting circumstances are, whatever the happenings are this Advent season, may God restore to you the joy of his nearness. He is at hand. He is present And because he is present, and because he never changes, and because he is always at work, you and I can rejoice. We can know him, and we can enjoy him, because he's near. Friends, this season, may he be your joy. And in your joy, May you reflect to a watching and weary and worried and worn out city, a worn out people, an anxious and tired people. May you reflect the joy that can never be taken. May you reflect the gentleness and the forbearance of the one who has saved you. May God in his grace, 10 years down the road, allow us to look back and say, because of his work, by his spirit, we've become a people known for the reasonableness of Christ. And God has used it for many people to be able to come to see him and enjoy him. Friends, let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond to God's word together this morning by having a moment to reflect, and then for those who have tasted of the grace of 
God through repentance and faith in Christ, we are going to celebrate his goodness to us. We're going to celebrate the joy that is ours because of the gospel as we receive communion together. And then we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate. And we're going to be sent out from here to be his people here in this place. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you this morning that what you call us to, you enable us to do. Lord, we can rejoice our tears can be the expression of our joy. We can rejoice with, with good news, with, with full hearts because of who you are, because you don't change. Lord, this morning, help us to see where we have allowed the source of our joy to shift from the constant, consistent, steady reality of who you are for us onto the shifting circumstantial situations that we face each day. Help us to see it so we can cut those ties. And our hearts again can be tethered to and rooted in who you are for us in your son. That we might see you more clearly, enjoy you more fully, and be able to reflect you. Display your goodness to a watching world. Lord, we ask that you would do this very thing by your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.